1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today Dr. Adrian Masters to tell us all about his book titled We the King, Creating Royal Legislation in the 16th Century Spanish New World, published by Cambridge University Press just out in 2023. This is a really interesting book. It does a whole bunch of things at once. It challenges dominant top-down interpretations of how the Spanish Empire worked, how the monarch decided what would happen in the Spanish New World. Um, And it also actually investigates and pokes at what these processes really were and how All sorts of different people at multiple different levels of the empire were much more involved than we might have thought in having a say over what Spanish colonial rule, imperial rule actually looked like. Um, So this book is kind of doing some really interesting stuff in terms of historiography, in terms of the top level of our understanding of the Spanish empire and also at the same time getting into the weeds of what actually happened practically on a day-to-day basis. In some senses, I even felt reading it, you could smell the parchment, you could smell the paper um, that was being discussed. So Adrian, I'm so pleased to welcome you to the podcast to tell us all about your book.
1: And thank you so much for having me and for organizing this. I'm really happy to have the opportunity. Thanks.
0: Before we dive into all the things of the book though, I was wondering if you could maybe start us off by introducing yourself a little bit and explaining sort of how and why you came to write this.
1: I'm sure, yeah, my name is Adrian Masters. I got my PhD in 2018 from the University of Texas at Austin. The question of um, where I'm from and all that is sort of, I always have to ask like, how much time do you have? But long story short is my parents are both American I was raised in a small town in Costa Rica. Um, I've since lived in a couple different countries. Um, long, The short story, would, I guess, would be I've lived in the United States, Mexico, Spain, Italy, Albania, and currently Germany. Um, that's the short story. Um, and right now, I am a, the head of a research group at the University of Trier, which is a university. Um, quite, it's in Germany, quite close to the border with um, Luxembourg. And so as for the book itself, there's also a long story there. (laughs) Um, So this book is actually the the monstrous outgrowth of the first chapter of another book, which I'm still slowly, slowly writing. And that book was supposed to be about the invention of the legal term mestizo. It's this category, uh, which means part indigenous, part Spanish. Um, You know, experts will know that that this is very important, this category for Latin America. It's very important in Latin American identity in it pops up in the 1500s and all these uh, royal decrees. And so as I was hunting around for these royal decrees, reading them carefully, I found out that they were basically, the king's response to petitions. And then I started matching the petitions, which I was finding mostly in the Archive of the Indies in Seville. Um, And then I thought, well, you know, no problem. I'll just, you know, start the book and I will refer to the existing literature on Spanish imperial petitioning there wasn't anything really. I mean, you really had to read between the lines and deeply uh, kind of shake certain books to find evidence of petitioning, but there wasn't a book about petitioning. And so this first chapter of this book just sort of ballooned and got horribly out of control. And um, now it's a book. Uh, So I'm hoping that in the next 10 years or so, I'll be able to actually write that book about mestizos. And this is sort of um, partly my effort to clear the path for this book. Um, But there's, you know, once I started getting into the issue of petitions, always keeping the sort of bottom-up legal categorization problem um, with, with, you know, in in my site, um, I realized that I was sort of saying something that other scholars were generally not saying. So scholars are really interested in the history of racial categorization in the Spanish empire. And there's this famous racial hierarchy, the so-called sistema de castas, the caste system, which is supposed to have been sort of created by the crown from the top down as uh, this uh, monarchy tries to keep everyone in their place. Um, You know, you have Spaniards, Afro-descendants, indigenous peoples, and then they start to have kids with one another, and then you have to create this whole system to keep everyone in place. now, what I was finding was the exact opposite that is, so there's a major bottom-up factor. In fact, it's the dominant factor. And so as a grad student, I thought that was a really good opportunity to sort of um, you know, uh, flip the narrative. And I went to my then advisor, um, Jorge Canizares Guerra, and he really encouraged me to make this about petitioning and to aim big, to try to rethink as much of the empire as I could. And so that's basically what the book is an attempt to do.
0: Hmm. Thank you for taking us through that. Um, You're certainly not the first author I've heard from that says, I meant to write something else. And then I went and looked for the secondary literature and realized, hang on a second, I need to do this first. Um, And quite often really interesting books come from that. So given having read this book, it, it makes a lot of sense that that was one of the impetuses for it. Um, And I like this idea of kind of being, looking at the big picture, um, trying to understand kind of the big thing of what was happening. And I think it's that level I'd like to start asking you some questions about on the book. Um, And the piece I'd like to start is this idea in terms of petitioning, right? You have to have kind of someone who is making the petition and someone that they are then petitioning, right? There's two actors implied by that. So can you tell us about kind of in this context, what was this ruler ruled exchange that in interestingly you call a fiction um so can you tell us kind of what this is how it's fictional and what role it's playing in the functionality of this multifaceted empire
1: um yeah great question <clears throat> so when i first started to encounter this sort of bottom up movement of, you know petitioners dominating the process of sending letters to the king for example um there was a sort of model that I was playing with the so-called empowered interactions model, which a lot of Europeanists are, are have been playing with for about twenty years, in which the state grows because it benefits people and people use it, and so there's this sort of um, dialogue between uh, different social groups and the state, and it kind of it, it's sort of a form of communication that benefits everyone. Um, that is certainly how the Spanish king and vassals understood the matter in the 1500s. Of course, the more I read things, the more I became convinced that while this was happening, it was also imbued with all of these kind of impossible or very unlikely elements. And so I argue that there's this kind of major element of adult make-believe, you know, fictional thinking in which everyone assumes that there's this king who has a personal relationship with you a direct personal relationship with you he owes you things you owe him things different things but there's a sort of relationship like a father and a son or something or a lord and his protect and his servant or something now this series of fictions about kind of face to face communication obviously they don't really work because it's a huge empire And it doesn't have a very big population, actually. And there's um, enormous distances, huge logistical challenges that would prevent face-to-face dialogue. It's not possible. And of course, then you have a king and you have his ruling council of the Indies. But once you look at how many people that consists of, it might be like a dozen people making any sort of decisions about the entire new world. And in Costa Rica, we say that they're just four cats, on cuatro gatos, four cats running the whole empire. Um, so this idea that everyone's being listened to, and then also this listening is sort of a personal relationship, that's the very core fiction, I think, of vassalage and communication. And really, it's a big fiction in the empire. Um, so about this adult make-believe, um, there's also a series of other fictions which are necessary to keep this core fiction going. Um, You need that to believe that the king is being watched by God and that his conscience is in danger if he doesn't listen to the poor and the weak and those who are subjected to injustice or just doesn't listen in general. Vassals also believe that God was sort of looking over their shoulder and that's one of the reasons why they said they had to tell the truth. Um, But another, you know, there's other sort of more, less supernatural uh, elements here, for example, If you're living in um, central Chile, you need to believe that your physical letters are kind of contain your soul, that you're sending your soul in a piece of paper all the way to Madrid. And that's also a fiction in a way, partly because some of the letters don't always get there. And yet you sort of have to pretend they will. Um, And then you need to believe that the king is the author of royal decrees, even though as we'll be seeing, that's really not the case. Um, He writes... I the king on his decrees, but the the authorship of these decrees is extremely complex. Um, The idea ultimately with all of this fictional scaffolding is that the Spanish Empire is sort of a dialogue of different people's volitions, vassals, volitions traveling through time and space to reach the king. And then when the king's decision has been made and he says, yes, this should be a decree, um, his volition makes the decree magically this piece of paper magically become a a legal document, which others have to obey. And so the the idea is to trace how people make these fictions, which creates a very real system, and which is quite functional, uh, quite inclusive, but it's based on a lot of fictions. And then there's another element, well, two other elements really about this fictionality. One is that people have to actually exert labor, to produce these fictions. It's not just enough to say people wrote petitions. There's a whole bunch of work in um, creating the document. There's a whole bunch of work in transporting the document. There's work in the Council of the Indies interpretation of the documents, the storage of the documents, the retrieval of the documents, and of course the king is also working too. And so there's this whole element of work which kind of pushes against the ideas that this is just the king doing it. A lot of the fictions, fall apart a little bit. When we look at the labor side, we can sort of demythologize. But when people demythologize these things at the time, for example, when they tried to steal a petition, destroy a petition, or fake a decree, um, we find also that violence was there. Um, There's a really um, interesting and difficult case of an Inca, uh, part indigenous, part Spanish, um, descendant of the Incas who lives in Seville, and he forges royal decrees and is sentenced to be pulled apart by horses um, and have his hand cut off. Um, Ultimately, he gets away because he's an Inca and is only, only sentenced to a lifetime of hard labor. But so there's a, there's a, there are these different elements of labor and violence, which are always sort of lurking around the corner Um, In this story and finding them, finding those points of friction was important for um, kind of providing a sociology of how people come to believe in an empire of communication.
0: Okay, so for any listeners who didn't understand what I was talking about in terms of the big picture that this book is looking at, that answer quite fabulously gives us the whole context of why it matters. Why are we looking at these petitions and what does it tell us? Because as you've just described for us, Adrian, it tells us rather a lot. So now that we have that kind of context of why this matters and the ways people are thinking about it and why we want to figure out how they were thinking about it and why, um, let's tell us tell us a little bit more about the actual decrees. What were What did they look like? How long were they? What were the kinds? What are the ones you're focusing on? You know, if we're talking about petitions and decrees, like what are the decrees?
1: That's a really um, essential question for the whole Spanish empire and also for the way that people think about the Spanish empire. Very briefly, royal decrees sort of symbolize for many historians in the 20th century, less so in the 21st, but still it's very um, latent in the historiography. Royal decrees are supposed to be these um, ubiquitous, um, Extremely numerous documents which the kings used to control every element of people's lives. Um, Now, I'll of course be pushing against that myth, but it's worth keeping in mind that just in the 1500s alone, and just for the New World, not for the Spanish Empire's other areas, just for the New World in the 1500s, the king signed around 110,000 royal decrees, which is a lot of royal decrees. I think that might be one royal decree per every um, 30 inhabitants of the entire Spanish Indies, the Spanish New World around the year 1950. That's a lot of documents. Most people would have seen them, probably possessed them. Um, So what were they? They were generally pretty short documents, about a page or two long. Uh, They were always handwritten. Uh, I mean, you could make a copy and print it, but the king and his council never did that. They were always handwritten. Um, they have a little cross at the top, you know, it's invocation of God. And then you have the text and the text features the addressees, you know, who's it for, who's supposed to implement the decree, the implementation actually could be pretty much anyone. Um, so it's not just a, a, a document sent to a local official. It could be sent to a person who requested it, a, a concerned party, et cetera. It could go to uh, a nunnery or to an indigenous man or to the governor uh, or to all of the bishops of the New World at once. There, After this address, there's a descriptive section, sort of the background, what's the problem? Um, and this is really important to the book. There's a section in this descriptive component in which the king says, I have been informed in the passive voice that yada, yada, yada. And of course, this is pointing to a petition. a petition. And in some cases, if historians are lucky, the decree even says, such-and-such person informed me, the nuns of Mexico City informed me, for example, or the indigenous people of such-and-such town informed me. Then there's a section of the decree after this in which the king says you should not do X, Y, Z, or you should do X, Y, Z, or you should investigate, or something like that. It's pretty compact. Then you have the place where the king signed it, the date, and then the king's signature, I, the king, Then you have the secretary's signature and the minister's signatures, um, just to validate that they were part of this. So that's royal decrees in general, but there's actually two families of royal decrees. One is decrees de gobierno, which means sort of administrative decrees. And then there's another group called de gracia decrees, which are related to privilege, grace, fundamentally. Um, I would say about 90% or more of royal decrees are actually about privileges or pardons, travel licenses or patents. They're super interesting, but they're not the subject of this book. I'm interested in the gobierno side, the administrative side. And these made up, like I said, about 10% of these 110,000 decrees. There's lots of different estimates of how many gobierno decrees there might be. And actually there's quite a lot of overlap between a privilege and an administrative decree in some cases. But more or less, I would say, depending on how you count them, there's between 2,000 to 10,000 of them for the 1500s, probably more like 10. Um, Some of them were about very narrow local topics, like where a, a window in a university in Mexico City has to go. And then there's really, really, really vast themes in some of them. Like, for example, all natives of Mexico have to learn the language Nahuatl. Um, or even bigger, no non-Catholics are allowed in the New World, really geographically big. And and this is clearly what we would today call legislation, and actors at the time also called it legislation. Um, You could also have a decree that only applies to one area, or applies to all areas of the New World. And then you have a bunch of different themes. They could be about Indigenous rights, uh, what we would today call racial policies, about language, about all sorts of corporate rights and obligations, say, for example, of cities or friars or uh, brotherhoods, the, where cities are located. Um, anything having to do with the military. Where do you put a fortress? Where's X, Y and Z garrison? Um, immigration. Administrative rules. Uh, you know, where should the governor be located? Where's the jurisdiction of Guatemala? Uh, also, all sorts of things about government budgets. um. And then a lot of other smaller things like local disputes, where a neighbor's fence is located, um, some things that we might consider unusual, like, for example, uh, which pillow the bishop should sit on in the cathedral. Um, now, and I also just want to clarify something. Uh, this is not litigation. This, These are just simple petitions which one person sends. It's not um, Adam versus Steve or Susie versus Rebecca, and they take things to court. It's not like that at all. It's just a single simple document. I'll explain more about that later, which one can send directly, and no one checks or vets your petition on the way to the king. Um, So then the question is, why should anyone study these gobierno decrees, these royal decrees with administrative themes? Um, I got there because that's Um, how the legal category mestizo arises. That's how a lot of the Indies so-called racial categories acquire meaning. Um, So you can rethink the history of racial categorization. Where does it come from? Why does it emerge in this time period? Um, By looking at gobierno decrees. And then you can also rethink the whole Spanish empire because these decrees really mattered in lots of ways. And in the vast majority of the historiography, uh, these decrees just sort of pop up from the king and then they go to the Indies, no further explanation is given. And this of course, adds to this sort of sense that these uh, kings are control freaks or authoritarians. Um, it builds into the whole history of you know, why is Latin America uh, a deficient you know, democratic part of the world and why does it have dictators? Now, if you think about this history of how in the 16th century petitions arose, you realize that a lot of these deeper genealogies of today's problems are probably a little overstated. Um, and that ordinary people had quite a lot of opinions about how things should be run and that people were very experimental and, um, had the courage to propose, um, new institutions and new categories.
0: So that kind of leads to the obvious question. How did one create a petition. Why might one create a petition? I mean, the obvious, you've given us some examples already about cushions and windows, um, but also really far-reaching ones, like no one who has this religion can go to this entire part of the world. But can you take us through, I guess, maybe I'm almost in my head imagining like a flowchart, like how was a petition created? Who was doing this? Was it really everyone?
1: Yeah. um, This is a big part of the fiction, right? I mean, the fiction is that anyone who is a subject of the king has the king's ear. And so how everyone was that everyone wasn't quite so simple. Although I would say in the final analysis, overall quite a lot of people could petition, but it wasn't as easy for say an indigenous widow to petition as it was for a Spanish viceroy or governor. So basically gobierno petitions um, are really simple in format and they don't have very many rules they go straight to the king. You don't have to pass them through any um, local authorities and you don't have to stamp them with anything necessarily, not in the 1500s at least. Um, So if you could write, you could send a petition just like that. There wasn't like a a 10 peso fee for processing it. You could just send it um, in the mail or with a friend who was traveling to court. Now, of course, We have to remember two important things. First of all, of Spanish men, um, probably only 75% could coherently assemble a petition. And then I think maybe the the number for women is quite a lot more reduced. Maybe 15% of women would have been able to put a petition together in terms of literacy. Uh, And then, of course, we have to remember Spanish is a tiny minority language in the New World. Most people speak Nahuatl or Mayan or... um, Purepecha or Muisca or Quechua or Aymara or something else. Um, So if you're indigenous, um, you do have to rely on intermediaries. Um, Now the good news for people who didn't even write necessarily in Spanish is that the New World had a lot of intermediaries who could provide these services, the service of helping someone with a petition. Indigenous people managed to, uh, of course, a lot of them learn Spanish or Latin, but those who didn't or just wanted a little bit of assistance could normally find either informal assistance like priests or, or, or friars or just anyone to help them write a one page document. Um, they could also, if they lived near cities, the crown paid for a certain uh, solicitors and procurators to provide these sorts of services for free. Um, so there's quite a lot of, um, unpaid intermediaries, friends, allies, and so forth, who do help indigenous people write. Um, there's also paid assistance. You can also pay an agent to see the case through. You could even pay an agent if you have the money to go all the way to the court, although that was, of course, extremely expensive. Um, so what we also see is you might have, for example, um, translators and the translators might also stand before a notary and say, you know, this is really what this document says. It's in it's in Mayan, Yucatec Mayan. It's in um, Urepecha or something. Uh, but this is legitimately what it says. And then the notary might help the indigenous petitioners kind of certify that the Spanish version is the same as the indigenous version, so that the volition of the indigenous person is authentically traveling then to court. Um, I would also say that the world of these intermediaries was very uh, masculine. Uh, There weren't women intermediaries helping write these things, and some women in the New World say to their relatives, I'm sorry I haven't written you in Spain. Uh, It's not easy for women to write over here, which suggests to me that there is a sort of sense that um, petitioning is a little rough and masculine and that it's sort of a man's world. Uh, a lot of female petitioners will petition through male advocates, um, defenders, allies, and, and the like. So it wasn't really all that inclusive for women. Uh, and then of course, we have to remember that whoever wrote the most was going to prompt the most decrees and royal, Spanish royal officials had unlimited paper, scribal assistance, and it was even their job to report to the king and the council. So, of course, elite Spaniards, Spanish officials and these sorts dominate the process, but they don't entirely dominate it. And the king and the council don't always just take their petitions over everybody else's petitions. It's a little more uh, complicated than that.
0: So I'd love to get into some of that complexity um, because we've sort of talked about kind of both sides of it, right? The idea of what the king is meant to be doing and the imaginary of everyone can talk to the king and, okay, there's people um, in various places putting together petitions by themselves with some of these very fascinating intermediaries. Um, But I don't want to ignore the point that you briefly mentioned earlier and thankfully talk a lot about in the book that getting from point A to point B, getting from creating a petition with or without intermediaries and then getting that to the actual um, desk of the king is not something we should gloss over, right? There's loads of things that impact that process. So I was wondering if you could take us through some of those factors, some of those things we have to keep in mind um, that influence kind of whether, how, when the petition that gets created actually gets where it's meant to go.
1: In this book, I focus very much on any kind of friction I can find in the so-called, you know, vassal ruler dialogue. I'm really interested when things don't work. I think they tell us a lot about when things do. We've already seen that intermediaries were very important for helping this process along. They create a sort of fiction that uh, there are these people who kind of amplify uh, people's volitions. you know the indigenous widow's uh, volition was amplified by the translator, for example, or by the notary and now the king can hear her even better. Now one problem of course was that uh, even though people imagined intermediaries to be so-called instruments, they call them instrumentos, which just help you get to the king, um, you could have someone manipulate a translator. you could you could hire a legal agent, sabotages the case or adds something that benefits his family secretly. Uh, So you have all of these sort of possibilities that the intermediaries can mess everything up. Now, there are even bigger problems with, uh, for example, internal sabotage. Let's say that you want to report something about a governor and he doesn't want that to reach the king. And so he might have someone pushed into a river or he might dump the documents overboard or something like that. Um, so there's a lot of uh, friction when people, other people start to handle your documents. And then there's this matter of logistics, right? You have to get a document from say, um, you know, Potosi, which is today in Bolivia, all the way to um, Valladolid, where the king was currently resting that's a whole ordeal. And that's where labor is really obvious. You know, this book talks a lot about labor. Uh, you couldn't move these petitions without the labor of, for example, um, indigenous trail sweepers. You couldn't move these documents without, um, the children who worked on boats. You couldn't move these without, um, Afro descendant muleteers. And, in some parts of the empire where you don't have these actors, it really makes a big difference. Um, for example, merchants moved a lot of letters. And if you lived close to Spain, but there weren't any merchants, you were ju- you were in a big pickle. If you lived really far away, but you had merchants who traveled often to Iberia, then you were in a much better situation. So there's a lot of inequality in how these... Um, Logistics networks were distributed. There's other problems, too, which don't come from inside the empire. They come from outside the empire. So, for example, British pirates. Big problem for the Spanish empire because they're capturing the boats that have petitions in them. Um, let's say that a sovereign indigenous group just says, you know, we don't want to be part of the Spanish empire, so we're going to rise up against uh, the king. And then they block the path. That could block towns for years, potentially. Um, If there was a group of runaway Afro-descendant communities, uh, that might also block a river or several towns from communication lines. And you really see this in a piracy crisis. The British are attacking very heavily in the 1570s to 1590s. So the Spanish decide to build the armada system uh, to uh, protect ships. But this means that the petitions that travel on ships are slowed down by years sometimes. And if the armada... Uh, it is late and it gets into a bad uh, weather pattern or something. And the captain says, I think we have to stay here for the year. And in Havana, for example, the petitions could be set back for years. So 10 percent of petitions arrived to court extremely late. So what most people would just do is they would write, you know, five copies of the same petition and send them by different boats and just sort of hope that they arrived. And we know that a lot of them did. Because there's hundreds of thousands, if not millions of them, in the archive of the Indies today, fortunately.
0: Which is quite shocking, really, when you think about all of the obstacles that they had to overcome to get there. But, of course, very useful for historical analysis. So I'd love to kind of ask you about that mass of them. Um, the, 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 just the sheer numbers that we have. Looking at these numbers, these groups of petitions what sorts of themes can we see from them kind of collectively? What does it tell us about what people were trying to change about the empire and how it worked?
1: That's a very tricky question. And I don't fully answer it in the book because it is so difficult to account for a lo- local variation and change over time throughout the entire Indies when it comes to like the specific themes of Royal decrees. So for example, in 1490s Santo Domingo, you know, where the colony is just getting started, um, you're going to see lots of things about sort of the basics of um, colonists uh, society setting up in uh, the tropics. Then, you know, if you fast forward to uh, 1530s Mexico, you're going to see a lot about uh, what to do with um, friars competing with conquistadors over indigenous towns. And if you go to 1540s Lima, you're going to see a lot about, like, how does the crown put down rebel conquistadors and how do you manage, like, all this gold they stole from the Incas? And if you go to 1550s Panama, it's going to be about merchants. If you go to 1560s Cusco, it's going to be about the Inca royal family and indigenous customs and it just goes on and on and on. So there's a huge amount of social change, obviously, going on after the conquests of the new world. And... As society develops and new actors enter the picture, there's sort of all of these different uh, phases and kind of fads in terms of what people are petitioning for. I would say overall, the first 30 or 40 years of the establishment of each one of these societies features the most creative and conflictive proposals, which have a lot of new racial categories A lot of proposals about how to organize jurisdiction, who should be in charge and how, how much power should friars have, um, how much power should conquistadors have. And then as you get further in, the decrees actually become sometimes a little bit more specific as the sort of fine-tuning starts to go. But that's very general, and I think um, it would be a really, really good topic of research to a case study comparing several different, uh, areas in terms of royal decrees. Um, and I want to just mention something very odd about these decrees as people fight for them. I'm not trying to propose uh, that everyone was acting rationally when they petitioned, that they knew exactly what they were doing, that they understood the consequences of their actions. I mean, in these, in this period of upheaval, you have a lot of strange, um, conflicting, uh, Social interests, and then they don't always translate directly to something beneficial for them. Um, For example, you have a group of black subjects in Mexico uh, petitioning to restrict indigenous merchants' mobility. They don't want these merchants traveling from town to town, and you're thinking, what does this have to do with them? Or you might have friars arguing for the reduction of the construction of their own monasteries, saying that they're too big and they're too opulent. so the petition and response system is also full of a lot of weirdness. And it sort of, for that reason, sometimes resists tidy models about historical change and actors' interests in that sort of thing.
0: Fair enough. But I bet it's pretty entertaining to read through when you come across some of the stranger things and realize, hang on a second, the monastery you're trying to destroy is yours?
1: Exactly. Very <laughs> strange stuff.
0: I bet. Um, one of the, Speaking of kind of, I don't know, strange components is today we're very used to this idea that um, governments don't really move very much, right? But we also, it's quite commonly well known that uh, courts used to move all over the place, that there wasn't one seat of government. And to be honest, I didn't really ever think that much about kind of, well, at some point that must have changed, right? Right. And then, of course, in your book, it does change. You already mentioned earlier one of the barriers to getting one's petition to the king's desk is that the king could be somewhere over here resting. He could be somewhere over there. Um, But Philip II does actually change that. He decides to move the court to Madrid, and it becomes a much more permanent location. What impact did this have on this petitions process and the wider ecosystem of government?
1: Yeah, um it really must sound strange to sort of modern listeners or readers that the Council of the Indies is, we we think of it as this, you know, major institution and it might have, I don't know, eight ministers and they're basically living half the time in sort of I don't know a monastery in some small town in Spain as the royal train or the imperial train is moving through town and they're basically being pulled around on an ox cart. And that's really important to this story. Uh, and I'll be talking about that a little bit more afterwards. Uh, it has a huge, huge impact on the overall kind of process that council ministers had to go through. They developed very limited decision-making technologies. They didn't really have much of an archive. Now, they they also, um, in some ways, had a benefit which arose from this distance, uh, this constant movement, is, you know, a rolling stone gathers no moss, or at least very little moss. And so the Council of the Indies um, remained somewhat impartial, because it was always moving. It didn't, but during this mobile phase, it wasn't um, getting chased around by uh, rich New World-related vassals who were trying to become friends with the ministers. This did happen, actually, but it was only the very richest who could attempt to follow this ox train that many times. I mean, travel was much more expensive back then than it is today and very time-consuming, obviously. So ministers weren't didn't have very deep social ties to the Indies in some cases. When King Philip finally says, okay, enough with this, we have to move it to Madrid, Everything changes. This happens in 1561, and suddenly ministers have like permanent offices. Um, They can assemble uh, an archive or or several archives, which they can refer to. Um, They're also now living in a city, and that city is basically just a landing pad for all of these people from around the empire, especially the New World. And a lot of these are wealthy and pushy New World elites and petitioners. So there's this huge crisis of impartiality in which ministers are suddenly playing cards with people from Peru or accepting gifts from people from Santo Domingo. And this leads to a big crisis.
0: So kind of the obvious answer, the obvious question is, so what did Philip do about it?
1: (laughs) Exactly. So King Philip is sort of famous for being a little reclusive Um, actually very reclusive. He uh, believed that face-to-face encounters with people create space of manipulation. Um, You could become too partial towards someone. You could be manipulated by the sound of someone's voice or something. And so he really didn't like to see people. Uh, That was just part of his personality. But in the 1560s, there's also sort of a crisis of integrity affecting the Council of the Indies. And he says, we need to separate the Council of the Indies. From subjects. They need to communicate, but by paper. And this ultimately sort of is a revolution uh, because it forces a sort of more less patrimonial, more bureaucratic attitude among ministers, even though they had the possibility to meet with Indies subjects. And even if they wanted to, they couldn't. Um, And in the process of fighting about distance with Indies vassals, the Council of the Indies actually has its biggest reform, which culminates in the 1570s, which uh, structures the whole way that the council works. I'll talk about that in a bit. Um, The council basically becomes more archival, more active, more informed, and also more distant from new world subjects. So the question maybe would arise, why would vassals want to become friends with ministers or maybe more than friends? Um, If you were a somewhat wealthy vassal or you intended to become a wealthy vassal and you moved to Madrid, Madrid was a dusty, expensive, and pretty dirty city. It wasn't very safe. Um, it was very remote. Um, it wasn't designed to be a court really. It didn't have enough housing. It was sort of in, you know, it was a very subpar European court in the first decades. Um, so one could always try to, I don't know, um, play cards with a minister and, you know, put in a good word. Um, when ministers sort of said, ah, oh, that makes me a little bit uncomfortable. Um, Or, you know, um, they were afraid that they'd be caught accepting a a massive bribe. People had to find other strategies. And one strategy that a lot of vassals pursue is uh, women use beautiful and valuable gifts to kind of change ministers' opinions about certain things. So you might have a lady uh, come by and say, oh, I would just like to give a gift to the honorable minister. And she'll pull out a golden eagle figurine from probably these are eagle eagle figurines from Costa Rica and Panama, actually. Um, There's all sorts of pearls and silver going around, normally very exquisite things. It's normally not like a secret cash payment. It's normally artwork, a lot of indigenous artwork, uh, precious gems that are very small. Um, But then there's this question, you know, isn't this ruining the fiction of the king listening to the vassals, right? Because he's supposed to be the one listening. He can accept gifts, he can accept bribes, whatever. He's the king, it doesn't matter. But his ministers are supposed to be instruments that amplify the voice of vassals. You're not supposed to mess that up. So this auditor, Juan de Obando, um, spends about, I think, a year and a half investigating Madrid. And he finds all all sorts of powerful women uh, shaping the behaviors of ministers. And so when he becomes council president in 1571, um, he's very much going to reform the council to improve its gobierno process, but also to kind of respond against these powerful court women.
0: Mm. So. Obviously, there's kind of some kind of immediate effects of this, right? Like, oh, you can't have women give you nice things, right, would presumably be an obvious first step. But you show in the book that it really goes further than that and that this um, reformed officialdom becomes increasingly misogynistic and increasingly gendered. Um, can you kind of talk us through that wider process?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm not just going to provide a little bit of framing here. The Council of the Indies really really... Um, Europe's leading overseas institution of rule. I mean, unless you count the Vatican, um, but this is really a very important uh, precedent for European expansion and also the Spanish administration's very cutting edge. Um, probably outside of China and Italy, it's the world's most sophisticated bureaucracy and it's the most kind of expansionist bureaucracy. Um, so in a way, a lot of things that are going to happen later in England and France and other places Uh, even in Portugal, are going to happen here first. And so this um, divorce of council ministers from subjects and their distancing socially is quite important. Um, Now, what happens is a lot of this is discussed by the king and his highest ministers and his secretaries in very misogynistic terms. Um, There's this idea that... um, Spain is undergoing a crisis in which men are becoming more effeminate. They don't fight as much anymore. They um, like pretty things. They like art and music and poetry and they're silly and playful. And this causes a lot of anxiety in Madrid. Um, There's also a sense that men just aren't as um, resilient against corruption anymore because they like pretty things and women are effeminizing them. And so the king and his... Uh, officials try to reinstate a sort of older sort of, uh, you know, back in the day, Spain, Spanish men used to be like, blah, blah, blah. They try to uh, create an identity for ministers based on that sort of old warrior ethic um, in which men have to show a so-called masculine breast against temptation. And some people even use sort of homophobic undertones by saying, um, you know, I have the minister so bribed that, you know, basically I could call them my husband if I wanted, you know, men saying this about ministers. In other words, that there's a sort of demeaning element to giving into corruption. And now this of course um, culminates in a series of printed works and manuscript works in which scholars in Madrid at the time are saying, yes, we have to get women out of government completely. Um, that's not entirely the absolute final outcome On the one hand, if you were a poor woman, you weren't benefiting from these elite women trafficking in in goods. So, for example, if you're an indigenous widow, it's not of much good to you that a very powerful uh, slave owner from Santo Domingo is in Madrid doing these things. So it might have made the, the playing field more impartial for those who weren't as powerful. And the other thing is that we do still have evidence that there were, of course, women petitioners that continued to petition, and um, some individuals who were directly connected to the Council of the Indies and these scandals about corruption would later actually write certain treatises saying, I think women should be able to run the empire just fine. So there is a little bit of a pushback. However, I would say between the 1560s to 1600, there's a strong uh, association of a distant uh, masculine official whose counterpart would be an effeminate, uh, silly man who gives in to gifts and the joys of gambling and women and so forth.
0: So now that we have this idea of a bunch of officials who are almost certainly men, who are not supposed to be accepting gifts from women, who are in Madrid in all of its hot dustiness with not enough housing, um, and thousands upon thousands and thousands of petitions coming in. How were decisions actually kind of made by these ministers about these petitions? How did they try and make sense of this massive amount of information and what should be done about it?
1: Yeah, this is two whole chapters in the book deal with these problems. Um, I got a lot of questions as I was writing the book, you know. Um, Surely, yeah, of course, they answer the the. Crown responds to a lot of petitions, but it must reject some of them. I mean, we can be pretty sure that with around ten thousand royal decrees de gobierno, the council is saying that, yes, maybe the too many, and they sort of feel that way too. By the late fifteen hundreds, uh, but of course they were also rejecting a whole bunch of proposals. And we have to remember, a, a petition could have one proposal or hundred and fifty. So of course, I mean, you know, we're, the council had to be somewhat judicious and not just accept anything. And and so these chapters about the decision making process also sort of try to engage with this um, scholarly uh, formula. A lot of um, scholars have in the last 30 years argued that archives equal power, that states need archives to be powerful. And of course, colonial archives also equal colonial power. but when you think about the Council of the Indies riding around in its ox cart in 1530, you're thinking, hmm, I mean, they had power in a way. It was the power of communication, but archives weren't a part of that. Now, if you jump ahead 70 years, archives were a part of it. So then the question is, how does one make archives powerful? They're clearly not inherently powerful, and not not all states even have archives. Um, but So who makes archives powerful? Um, what makes them powerful? And what kind of problems might a government have if the governments don't have archives? So that's what these two chapters are supposed to do. And I divide them into two phases. The first chapter is about when council ministers are in their ox carts. you know, roving throughout Europe. Um, council ministers had a system of values. They wanted to spread Catholicism. They wanted to defend the empire, or the interests of the monarch, and they viewed their duty to as, as being the defense of vassals, including Indians. But that's very general. It's not going to get them very far when they get a specific petition. So they have a certain um, amount of reading strategies. They might try to look at the source and figure out um, is this true or not? They might also, if they're lucky, get a sort of dossier or maybe in the mail, they might get multiple simultaneous petitions, which might have different points of view. And so from this multi-perspectivity, maybe they can find bias, although that was pretty rare. Um, If ministers couldn't decide, they would have oral debates. Most of the times these uh, probably weren't Uh, these individual cases weren't debated very often because there were too few ministers and too many petitions. Um, There could be oral debates in which the council ministers talk with the king or just write the king. Um, This of course slowed things down but it made things uh, seem a little bit more um, official just because there was a little bit more consensus. Now we also have to remember that um, Council ministers don't have a lot of time and they don't have big archives, so legal references aren't very rich in the beginning. You have royal decrees, which the kings themselves have signed, and ministers could consult them. Uh, well, it's sort of surprising that you don't see more uh, ministers consulting um, Spanish legal corpuses or traditions, or for example, you don't see a lot of references to the old Testament, to natural law, to common law, to Canon law, um, or other laws. And I've just, I haven't found any evidence of that. And I think the real reason is just, those are very time consuming sources to read or tease out. So ministers don't have the time. Um, then you have, uh, committees, juntas, um, The king might say, "Okay, we really need to solve this This as a crisis. Uh, And they might call together theologians. And then you really do see this sort of Spanish law, the Bible, all these sorts of things. Or they might call together experts who just know about things. For example, what's the dividing line between Portugal and Spain and Asia? Um, That's not something that you can figure out by reading uh, medieval Spanish law or the Bible. You need facts. not a lot of reliance on experience. You would think that ministers would have been in the Indies and would know all about this, but the emperor and uh, his son didn't really trust officials who had been in the Indies too much. And so we don't see very many ministers with this background. And a very common approach is just to say, um, dear Indies officials, here's a royal decree, please investigate this and you tell us what you think should be done. So that's also an easy way out. The absolute most extreme was to send a commissioner to the New World and say, you need to go there and figure it out. And that always bombed because they just got bribed when they got there. So uh, the council couldn't really rely on that. So if we jump to the 1560s, we see lots of improvements. Um, Suddenly in the 1570s, you have um, legal sources being indexed. And there's even a reference book. So you could be like, oh, this is a problem about municipalities and jurisdiction, go to a page whatever, and then there's a list of the royal decrees. That really helps speed things up, and it takes away a little power from petitioners because they're not phrasing things, they're not prompting things as often. The council can say, yeah, no, we've already decided on that. Um, you also get a lot more factual reference works. The President Ovando in the 15... 15- 70s tries to get all these crazy descriptions of the Indies and all these vassals have to report what it's like and then and that doesn't really work out but ministers start to collect the best petitions uh, into different thematic groups so about 30 or 40 thematic groups. Um, Also we have to remember now we're in Madrid so maybe someone wants to find out why did the ship sink in Chile? Well we have a sailor who was on board in Madrid and so ministers might pull him off the street and say could you please tell us what happened? Um, another two, these are probably the two most important technologies I would say of decision-making is, um, well, I'll start with the first, the first is the Franciscan commissioner. So there's this idea that the Franciscan order has, and they propose it to the council. They say, Hey, what about if we put one of our guys in the council? And every time we get a petition from a Franciscan from Venezuela or from Peru or whatever, uh, we'll give it a read. And we'll see if what it's saying is true. And they start to actually use this to cut down on radical pro-Indian arguments um, and that sort of thing, which is really chilling because this was a big you know, promise of the Spanish empire was that there was communication. And now there's a guy in the council sort of censoring things. Um, but this doesn't spread to other groups, which is probably a good move by the emperor um, and by the king to not sponsor this sort of project. The last and most important Uh, technology that you see in the 1570s to the 1590s are expert committees that are sort of semi-permanent. Spain had a lot of financial problems, tax problems, uh, mining problems, and so there was a new committee of finance, and they really knew what they were talking about in many ways, and they developed pretty good resources for figuring out the overall picture, and they could really say, no, this petitioner is full of it. This is not a good proposal. There was also the same thing for war, It was called the Junta of Puerto Rico because it was originally designed to solve a problem there. Um, So by the 1580s and 1590s, we even see the king making his own suggestions on petitions about military and financial things. And that's pretty unique, but overall, overall there was just no way for every petition to have its corresponding answer in the council. And I should also very briefly mention in this already very long answer that all of this archivization and organization was not just the work of ministers and secretaries and scribes it wasn't this magical event this popped up in the council there was a lot of work and this work belonged in large part to um subaltern officials and also their wives who acted as the custodians of archives and probably saved a lot of them from destruction you know one of the big questions we have is why do we have so many of these documents and secretaries wives oftentimes care for them in their own houses. So we have to imagine these poor women like living in the archive, which for us sounds great, but I think for them was actually quite stressful.
0: Yeah, I mean, for us, it does sound great, but also like we've chosen it, and presumably they had less of a say in living in the exactly. archives. Um, so, you know, fair point. I'd love to... Now that we've taken such a wonderfully deep dive into kind of what this actually looked like and what the petition process was like and who the different actors were and what circumstances they were operating in, almost zoom back out kind of to where we started and think about sort of overall, looking at this bigger picture, how do you find that petitioners were able to shape Big stuff, not the cushions or the windows, but institutions, legal categories, um, via this petition system.
1: Yeah, that's a uh, the real sort of um, I don't know the where it all comes together is strangely in a really small, maybe the smallest part of the whole book in terms of size is just the little words in the decrees. Um, the phraseology of these decrees is coming from petitions. The, the, the ministers are so busy and the subalterns are so busy. They just take the petitions, um, successful petitions, phraseologies, and pop them into the decree. And that really um, forces us to rethink a lot of stuff. There are whole traditions. Uh, for example, the decolonial tradition of scholarship on Latin America, uh, which sort of views Europeans as a unified group and... There's sort of already a modern state, which is already sort of seeking to dominate the new world in very specific ways. There are lots of other kind of sub-myths associated with this tradition, like, for example, the top-down creation of racial categories um, and this production of this, you know, uh, caste system with 168 um, subdivisions of different people. And what I try to show by looking deep into the phraseology and matching petitions to decrees is that's not really how it worked in the 1500s. I mean, yes, it's a very, uh, for the time, very impressive administration, I would say. By the 1590s, yes, the council knows quite a lot or can know quite a lot. But that doesn't necessarily account for the fact that the ultimate fiction of this whole empire is that it's a bunch of people and their king and that he has to listen to them. So this archival stuff is interesting, it's important, it helps the Spanish uh, administration do a lot of stuff, but it's not supposed to crowd out communication. And taking this communication-centered approach, I think, helps us rethink, for example, where racial categories come from. Um, I mean, almost anything, budget stuff, um, religious rules, all sorts of things can really come from this. Um, And it's impressive, I think, to see uh, ordinary people, non-elite groups, for example, participating in categorization of others. I think that's really uh, also a surprising element of this story. For example, there's a group of self-described mulatto residents in Mexico. I mentioned them. They try to limit the freedom of Nahuatl Indian merchants, um, in 1571. And what's so curious about this petition is that they introduce a category into into Spanish royal legislation that isn't in any other decree or legal book or anything. And that term is pochteca, which is not, of course, from any uh, Spanish term or from an African language. It's from Nahuatl itself. It's an indigenous term, which refers to long distance merchants. And so these Black subjects are defining Nawas themselves through Nahuatl concepts, using Nahuatl. And that's really uh, a different story, I think. We also have in 1585 uh, a group of, of Indians from Tlaxcala, this very important indigenous town, and they get permission from the king to expel Spaniards, Levantines, Greeks, Portuguese, and other nations. So they're also determining the boundaries of their own communities based on categorization of others. And you have many other cases of indigenous people saying, we don't want mulatos or mestizos or blacks in our town. And that really, um, by including these people into the process of categorization, I think that really opens a new door on where a lot of these categories come from and, and why they're also so slippery for historians today. It's because it didn't come from one unified group, it came from many groups. And you can see the same thing with institutions. So you have like the uh, indigenous community commoners and governors of Tenacusco, Mexico, who redraw their community boundaries thanks to a decree in 1550. And there we can see commoners participating, for example. We also have uh, Juan Apobatza, a governor from Verapaz in Guatemala. And he says to the king, I think we have to bring our current administration of this indigenous community back to the way it was before the Spanish. Um, And that's in 1555. And that shows you could also use royal decrees to make things more indigenous. It's not always making things more Spanish. And there's a whole bunch of other examples of indigenous people uh, using decrees to push back against friars and clergymen, um, forcing officials to uh, act in different ways. So they're not just affecting each other, they're affecting everybody. And I think, to tell that story really is a different Spanish empire. This is supposed to be the empire that embodies authoritarianism and dogma. Um, I do wanna add though, that you never ever see petitions ever aiming at changing the very fundamental core of Catholic dogma, you'd never see that. Much more often you actually see Vassals picking on each other through these decrees. I mean, it's not always a sort of um, inspiring story of vassals who change the law. Sometimes they're being nasty to each other, even not particularly elite groups. And so I don't want to sort of uh, create this sort of overly rosy image either, but it is surprisingly inclusive. And what individuals from non Spanish, non elite groups could achieve, uh, we've really underestimated.
0: Hmm. Fascinating. All sorts of areas for future exploration and research. Now that we have this very helpful basis. Um, In your first answer, you told us a bit about something you're hoping to do in the future. Uh, So I'll ask, I suppose, again, as my final question, now that this book is out, is there anything in particular you're looking to work on next?
1: So many things, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've never had the curse of being like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do for my next project? That's always been a problem where the... Uh, it's always been simultaneous projects. So um, as I was working on this, um, I've been co-authoring a book entitled uh, The Radical Spanish Empire with Jorge Canizares guerra who's a uh, professor at the University of Texas. And it's basically the argument of that book is... We have to reimagine the 1500s not just as a terrible time of conquest and demographic collapse and all of these awful things, but also a time in which um, indigenous people and women and others had this sort of explosion of anti-authoritarian, bottom-up thinking, and that that whole universe of radicalism. Uh, it's a, obviously a modern-day term, but this radicalism has been really underestimated. It's not a time period of dogma and conservatism um, alone. It's really got this other current of uh, commoner democracy and skepticism and all of these other elements. And it comes from, uh, this book comes from in large part, the idea of paperwork that I developed in We the King. So that's one book. Uh, Another book, which I'm hoping desperately to finish within the next six months, is a book on Spanish toleration in Chinese Manila. And there, uh, another interesting thing happens. In this case, it's not as connected to petitions and the king goes so darn far away that you don't really have people writing the king quite as much. But there's this um, arrival of all of these Chinese merchants who of course aren't Catholics and they push very heavily um, against uh, Catholic conservatives. And they manage for seven or eight decades to create a very strong culture of toleration on the ground. Um, so that's uh, you know what I'm working on these days. And in Germany at the University of Trier, I'm also the project leader of a research uh, initiative called uh, Glofib, which is um, the, 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 um, the words are Globale Verflechtungen und Rassische Kategorisieren die Iberischen Wurzeln des deutschen Rassendenkens, which basically translates to global entanglements of racial categorizations the Iberian Roots of German Racial Thought. And that's a big project with five five people will be working underneath me. And the question is, you know, when uh, German travelers abroad and later German colonial powers expanded into the world, uh, how did they look at uh, Latin America and Southeast Asia and this idea of the mestizo when they began to develop uh, racial science? Uh, This, of course, culminates from the 1700s to the early 20th century in a strong current of thinking that um, mixing is uh, biologically repulsive and horrible and should be prohibited. And a lot of people who argue this are actually looking at Brazil and Mexico and the Philippines when they're arguing that in Germany. And then there's the other side of the interpretation, which is that... um, Look at Mexico and Peru, where you have the indigenous families marrying the Spaniards, and it creates this superior culture uh, with uh, better characteristics. And then you start to also see strains of that in Germany. So that's uh, what I'll be doing for the next five and a half years in Trier.
0: Well, you certainly won't be bored. Um, You'll have rather a lot to do. But while you are off working on those various projects, um, of course, listeners can read the book we've been discussing, again, titled We the King, Creating Royal Legislation in the 16th Century Spanish New World. Adrian, thank you so much for sharing your time and expertise with us.
1: Thank you so much for organizing this and everything. For anyone thinking about participating, I really highly recommend this podcast. It's a class act. Thank you very much, Miranda.